Ah, god damn it. He, he's back. Yeah. Ah, the guy's back. Yeah. Uh, I hate him. He's persistent. I think the other guy's dead. Yeah. And I liked him. Yeah. We know well, he's dead. We already know he's dead. We, we haven't looked I, at his vitals. We or don't anything. have the kind of budget to look into this, so I guess we're stuck with what we're stuck he's with. He's dead. Right? He's really dead by a thousand cuts. That is what it is. Uh, <sighs> that was a short lived digression from this utter madness that this man is. <laughs> I'm enjoying, God, I I'm him. enjoying his madness. Uh, right? Why not? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. He knows where I live, and now he's a murderer. I'm so he's glad a you said that. Murderer. Yeah. So we'll see where this goes. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because my episode today is in response to uh, people being very upset uh, <laughs> that I did uh, the murder of crows. Uh, That's true. I, they were yeah. I mean nobody nobody except for one person was like, hey, uh, fuck you, <laughs> don't do murder of crows <laughs> again. Don't do murder of crows ever again. <laughs> you son uh, of a bitch. Uh, yeah. But I did happened. feel I did feel like it was a little bit of a, 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 a too obscure a title for this show, <laughs> right? Uh, didn't you feel a little like that after, in hindsight? Yeah, it's a little obscure, but let's yeah. let's talk about less obscure titles and welcome everyone to Director Peace Theater. <laughs> uh, just Fair you enough. know, uh, this is Director Peace Theater. Yeah. Uh, this is a show where we talk. We have two directors uh, yeah. that talk about um, directing in movies, specifically movies that you wouldn't expect necessarily uh, that the direct the direction would be uh, as on point as it is as mm-hmm. you think. Yeah. Um, and I think we have a good case of that. Yeah. I'm Abe Epperson, one of the guys. Introduce yourself, other co host. I'm Adam, the other of the guys, Adam Ganser. And this is an Adam episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. So we switch off, and this is yours. Yeah. Uh, and I want to ask you, Adam. Do it. What are we talking about today? We're talking about the Dark Knight, baby. Oh, baby. Dark Christopher fucking Nolan's night. Christopher fucking Dark Nolan. Night. Yeah, you love it? Were you excited? I, hey, uh, I'm here for it, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's it's probably his best. I think that's probably right. I think there's films he might have done better work on, but as far as being a good film, that I uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, yes, a lot I enjoyed this out. film the most out of all his films. Although I do like Memento a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do like Memento, but I yeah, I think if somebody was. If if people came in real hot, just like they did with my last uh, podcast about Murder of Crows, and said Dark Knight's the fucking best, I'd say sure. Uh, that's not that. That's not an offensive can, take to me. I mean, if anyone says that kind of thing, you, you sh- your immediate response should be sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know, like, you, you have no. It's not your job to disagree with anyone to right. like something. If somebody so. throws a stone in my apartment with the words "Dark Knight's the best," <laughs> no one's you, misunderstanding like, okay. how agency works. If you think like, no, no, it's not, and you, you can't think that. Right. I'm uh, sorry, uh, violent offender. Uh, no, you're wrong about this. <laughs> Let's yeah, have a conversation. Uh, no, I'm not offended so, by that. But that cuts both ways. So all you in the uh, comments, don't <laughs> gatekeep. You know, what's the use of that? Right. Just enjoy. Just enjoy things for what they are. Man. Stop. Yeah. Stop attacking. Uh, specifically, Dave. Please stop it. Uh, mm-hmm. The rest of you. Uh, no, but uh, I think you're right. That Dark Knight sort of stands the test of time as being Nolan's most beloved film. Uh, it also might be one of the most beloved films in the last twenty years, right? Like, I, I like I thought a lot about it. I was like, "What's more 
loved from this last swath of cinema than that movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, Heath Ledger is kind of... Yeah, that's that's a big part of it. Yeah. Right? Well, so... And that brings... I'm so glad you brought that up, because that brings up, I think, the, the most obvious objection to this topic, which is... Now, wait. So... You guys are going to, you say you're covering films that are not prestige films, right? And we're mm-hmm. covering The Dark Knight, and uh, Heath Ledger won an Academy Award for his Academy performance Award, in The Dark Knight. Right. Um, right. And it was also, that's also not the only award it was up for. It was up for eight. Um, but the rest of them were all technical yeah. awards, uh, like which they give to most blockbusters, like sound editing. Uh-huh. And, uh, it did have cinematography, which I was uh, actually a little surprised by. Um, so why are we covering this? And I think the answer is a little bit complicated, but the biggest reason is because it was not up for any prestige awards. And by that, I mean the creators, the best picture award, the best director award, the screenplay awards, those awards were not considered. And in this case, dark Knight campaigned very heavily to be considered for those. And the, the Academy said, no, um, and I think that's interesting. So, like, the Academy has overtly stated this is not a prestige film. This is not an Academy film. Uh, and so I think that makes it kind of fair game for us to talk about. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. more than that, because of what we're going to talk about, I think you're going to see exactly why the Academy made that decision um, and that they might have been right about that decision based on some of the things we're going to talk about today. So hopefully Ooh, that intrigues like that. you. Yeah. Um. So just like, so everybody understands Dark Knight is also important for Christopher Nolan, not just for, not just to us. Dark Knight is the reason why Christopher Nolan uh, has been able to basically make expensive sci-fi films that are original, which most people can't. Like since The Matrix, the number of original sci-fi films that have a blockbuster budget that are not parts of known IPs or adaptations or something are pretty low and Christopher Nolan has far and away the most permission. All of that was garnered because of the success of the dark Knight. I would include uh, inception, which was greenlit because of the dark Knight, And I think he got like $160 million to make it. No way that happens. If the dark Knight wasn't a success, um, mm-hmm. he'd made the prestige before, but that's a much cheaper movie to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you know, all the rest of them that he's made uh, interstellar, uh, even Dunkirk, I would argue, all of the permission to make films like that comes from the success of this movie. So it's really important mm. for his career. Um, so let's. I think it was just getting him Inception, <clears throat> because yeah. once he made Inception, yeah. that kind of did it again. And then that's true. That's Tenet. You know, which mm-hmm. really stunk up the place, <laughs> frankly. Well, see, and uh, if I if I was allowed to do like a four hour version of a podcast that's just about Chris Nolan, by the way. If you ever want to do just a Chris Nolan series that's equivalent to Kings of King, I'd be in on that because I have mixed feelings about Nolan. I think he's great in some ways and also really not great. Um, and I would say Inception is his peak and also his flaw is on display mm-hmm. in that film. Uh, but we're going to see a little bit of it today in The Dark Knight as well uh, <laughs> because we're going to find out Chris Nolan actually has a couple very specific tricks that he really leans heavily on to make his films. And uh, specifically he leans on one tool to be his kind of camera tool. And that tool is the steady cam. 
So yeah. we're going to talk about how does a director use the Steadicam, kind of a little bit of the history of it, and uh, what do we learn about Chris Nolan as a director from mm-hmm. the way he chooses to use that tool. So uh, buckle up, Abe. Buckle oh, up. Oh, I'm ready, baby. And <laughs> by the way, you're talking to the camera camera guy, ex-camera mm-hmm. guy. So, mm-hmm. so you're going to have some opinions. a few things about steady cam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I hope you bring that uh, energy to it. Uh, yeah. I'm really excited oh, about it. I'm going to be this guy for the rest of the podcast. Right. Now, I don't know if Abe has read my notes in enough detail, but I cover his expertise, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but just <laughs> to start, let's talk about what a steady cam is and kind of how it's generally used. Okay, so the steady cam was introduced in 1975, and what it is is a stabilizing, like basically a stick that's weighted that you put uh, a camera on, and then the weight is counterbalanced by a backpack slight, like attachment to a person. And it allows an mm-hmm. operator to carry slash operate the camera uh, through a set or location smoothly. So it doesn't have that jostling thing like if you were walking with an actual camera in your hands. So that it feels like the camera is actually floating through a set or location. It's a very dynamic image. It's probably the most dynamic image. It's very filmic because it makes yeah. everything look like a dolly. Yes. It, and yes. it's more powerful than a dolly. It can be. It's less precise than a dolly, but in general, it's like having a dolly that's not on rails. So it gives you a lot of flexibility as a tool. Um, now, there have been precursors to this kind to this tool. It wasn't like it just came out of nowhere. Um, Stanley Kubrick very famously had a shot in Paths of Glory sort of driving through uh, the trenches of the world. Like it's a World War I film and it's walking through the trenches that was steady cam like but it was not actually that tool. So we'd kind of been building up to it. It's kind and of confusing because the first use of it, they just like to point this out, Bound for Glory, which is uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is a different movie, is yeah. the actual first time it was used by uh, Garrett Brown, the inventor of Steadicam. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's just like, but you'll also know, like, think Rocky. Rocky yes, is like the first after, big use. Yes. And that was like, everyone knew about him running up the steps Correct. and stuff. And that's a, that's also such an iconic scene. And the fact that the Steadicam was the tool that was used to achieve it sort of plants it in history. Um, also, mm-hmm. when Steadicam was invented, there was a 10 minute short film that was created like sort of right away that had basically a Steadicam operator on the back of a crane. So you get a crane oh. shot, right? Which is sort of swooping down from, you know, over a yep. building or whatever. And then the operator got off the crane off. and yeah. started walking yeah. through the crowd. A shot that is like, whoa, how'd they <clears throat> do it? Uh, if you want a modern example of it, the the first shot of Boogie Nights is exactly that Ooh, kind of shot. I thought you were going to go with True Detective. True Detective also has it, but I think Boogie Season Nights' is intro is so memorable because it's like, wow, how do they do that? Yeah, uh, that one's that one rips. Yeah, it does. It's great. And also, like, hey, welcome, P.T. Anderson. This guy's going to make some fucking movies. Oh, uh, yeah, that guy, get, that guy. Yeah. Yeah, that guy gets it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he did good. Uh, he did, Magnolia, get out of town. Magnolia is amazing. Uh, I wish we could cover going it. Going through all of the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the TV station, the the, the behind-the-scenes of the game yep. show in Magnolia. Yep. Oh, my God. So good. In any Great case, that's sort of uh, – those are some memorable 
like watermarks that the Steadicam was part of. Um, so generally speaking, uh, it transformed the industry, of course, because it just creates a whole different way that you can conduct drama and shoot any scene because it's a tool it's that just you don't need to set stuff up. Polish, yeah. You get motion of camera in a way that usually it's so restricted because cameras are big and clunky. Um, you had to build a car for it to be like that's what dollies are tiny yes, little cars. Tiny little cars on rail, like trains and, on yeah, rails. And they can't, you can build them on rough terrain, but there's a limit to that because of physics. Right. This is physics of a person. With a bat, with essentially a vest that has this protruding thing, it's still kind of limited. But like, they can do cool stuff. They can jump. They can you yep. know walk up unsteady terrain. Yep, they can get really low to the ground uh, and yeah, follow that way. So I mean, Abe and I have actually both used these, uh, and I'll talk a bit, of, a bit about that. Uh, so I'll save it for that because we'll talk a little bit about what city cams can't do, just for the sake of conversation. So look. Mm-hmm. The way that the Steadicam is typically used in movies and TV, um, there are basically two big memorable ways. The first is that you get these big, long walk and talk segments. That's like one of the things the Steadicam made possible. It's probably most memorably done in the West Wing, uh, where you have like, you know, these people who are working for the president. They're so busy, they can only talk on their way to the next meeting. So you have a Steadicam walking all the way through this busy office. ER is another. Yeah. The same era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. ER also had this. And those are kind of innovations in TV of this uh piece of equipment. Right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of a new way to do to dramatize a thing that used to not be drama. Um and especially for that show West Wing it was important because it communicates a lot about how important their job is. Um so there's that. Also, by the way, uh looking ahead, it gives you the ability to throw away lines dramatically, meaning because you're watching like, people walk and talk, mm, sometimes like off screen, li- mm, sometimes off screen because things cut in front of camera, but also sometimes a line that isn't the best because they're walking and talking. You just you just kind of let it brush past you. Right, right. Uh, it creates a new. Yes, it's like a vector of motion, Correct. so some things can pass through and Correct. be gone. Correct. Some things wash yeah. over you, like not the best dialogue. It's a thing Aaron Sorkin's gotten away with for a very long time. Um, mm. And spoilers, it's a thing Nolan does as well. We'll talk about that. In oh a yes. Oh yes. So the other way that Steadicams are pretty f- memorably used is oneers, right? So what mm. I mean by oneers are single shots that are big, long. Uh, depictions of a series of events, sort of like, uh, for instance, the Internet High School sketch or the 8-bit sketch oh, I've seen that one. shot by notable cracked alum Abraham G. Epperson I. <laughs> That's not my name. That's it. <laughs> I wrote that down. Yeah. Did you like that? Yeah, you did write that down. Yeah, look at you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, what's I a did. funny... I, was, what's I became a, like the wonder the- guy. <laughs> Because I always wanted to turn things into wonners, and like Dan- Daniel O'Brien was like, you why, loved it. why do you always want to make things wonners? I hate wonners. And then it became like a, no, nah, that's not, none of that is true. <laughs> I, I thought for I a long time, what's the it. funniest initial that Abe, Abe could have? And I decided Probably G. Probably G. Yeah, yeah, I thought G was pretty good. Age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. G. Well, G G words are funny words. Yeah. This is like science is proven. This. <laughs> like, what is it, Gary Abraham Gary Epperson? Gary Abraham Goiter Epperson. <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, it's uh, G. I'm sorry for all the G's out there. Yeah, 
Well, you're all uh, funny. Just know that. You're all hilarious. Yeah, you're though. very funny people. I find you hilarious. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Abe was Abe did a lot of this stuff at Cracked. I thought it would be funny to shout it out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I did that. I did, like, yeah. Like those three, are those two sketches stuff. I mentioned are, I think, great examples of internet filmmaking. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I've told you that before. That's not news. I, I always thought that both of those, because I was there for both of them, uh, mm-hmm. involved a lot of challenging directing and also a lot of well-made storytelling and figuring out how to use this camera to see everything, but also arrange everything so that the camera sees it. It's like both elements are tricky. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you have to design the eye. Cause usually with directors or with cutting up footage, you can say director's job is just to direct the eye of the audience. That's, I firmly believe that. So when, you can cut to an insert shot of like, oh, that's the gun that is going to be important later. Right. It's like cut to the gun. Uh, or you can f- have to find, you if find you're following it. one thread yes. of a shot and it's a one you have to work the gun in. Right. And that's That's tougher. the tricky part. So, I mean, not to totally burst Dave's bubble, uh, but it has, there are other places we've seen one uh used in major cinema of late nope. such as uh Birdman obviously and The Revenant I haven't seen it and <laughs> haven't seen it and also uh last year's excellent or the year before's excellent film 1917 uh was also a oneer of this type so those are all achieved by mm-hmm. Steadicam um and they kind of mm-hmm. speak to what the notable effect of that tool is in cinema so transitioning now to The Dark Knight uh, Christopher Nolan also uses the Steadicam in those ways, right? So there's a lot of scenes, uh, sort of sneaky, a lot of scenes that are on a Steadicam where we get exposition, right? So uh, one that sprung to mind was the scene with Lucius Fox and Batman, sort of arguing about uh, what kind of new, <laughs> what kind of new armor does he need to fight dogs and stuff. There's like a long mm-hmm. walk and talk that's on an ex- that's on a Steadicam. He does do that. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, though, uh, does this thing where he will cut one or shots in like between each other. So he'll take two oneers of a scene, <clears throat> yeah, and then yeah. intercut them. Uh, he does that all the time in Dark Knight. I think that's a great technique because it's like, what is a what does a oneer get you really? Right. Like everyone going like, wow, that was all in one shot. Right. It's like, yeah, that's cool. I guess you know, like. But really, let's do the storytelling. Yeah. So, well, and that's what's interesting about it is by intercutting these oneers, like the best example of it, it incidentally, is uh, in the bank robbery. Uh, there's very clearly like two oneers, one that's following the gunners and then one that's following the guy who has the shotgun, who's like sort of walking yeah, the, down. Yeah, the bank yeah. The manager. You guys are dead. That guy. Uh, yeah. There's two oneers there, but he intercuts them. So that we don't get the effect of a Steadicam oneer, um, so he's kind of eliminated the benefit of being on Steadicam in some sense. So the question becomes, well, then why does he do it? So what's he up to? Uh, so this is like I think the most surprising point of the episode. I hope, and that is that Nolan uses the Steadicam to replace traditional coverage. So mm. a lot of films, and not when I say a lot, ninety nine point nine percent of films will have what you call traditional coverage, okay? 
And what that means is you put a camera on a tripod or even a dolly or, you know, basically any tool and you select here are the sizes. We're going to do a medium of this and we're going to get a medium of that and a close up of this guy for this line and maybe a wide shot of both of them together. And you shoot a scene this way, right? And the reason you do that is because it allows you to emphasize certain emotions at certain times and also it lets you give the editor options. So Nolan just basically abandons the tripod almost entirely in this movie, right? There's very few tripod shots in the dark. Very night. few. <clears throat> I was surprised though, because all I knew watch in my rewatch of this, right. cause I watched the last night and I didn't know your outline or what point you were going to make. You just said steady cam. Right. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. that's enough. Right. I need to just watch steady cam. I was surprised by how it's not that there's little steady cam. I was just, I, in my head, had thought, well, yeah, because he uses it every scene. I was surprised by how much Dolly and not Steadicam he uses. He does use Dolly, uh, but sometimes, by the way, he uses Dolly. He he gets Dolly shots that are actually Steadicam shots. Oh, is that yes. true? Yes. Uh, sometimes you can't tell, but sometimes. Well, I think his Steadicam operator is fucking awesome. Uh, I think they just have a steady cam every day. Yeah, so. I think that's right. They have a steady cam every day. If you have a budget like that, you do. Yes, yeah. and we're going to talk about that. It's expensive. Yes, it but does. It's not that expensive. No, if you're a multi-million dollar feature. That's correct. And well, I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but at some point, we're going to talk about exactly why this this packaging of steady cam plus budget exists because of that is a part of it. Mm. Um, but I think it's safe to say, and I don't think it's controversial when I say this. Nolan just puts tripod shots on Steadicam all the time in this film. Or I, I think you could even include Dolly in that. Like I think he'll have a little gentle creep yeah. or he'll swing to the laterally yes, all the time. Left to right. And just to kind of open it up. That's correct. And the, and the question becomes why? And of course, most people will say, well, it's exactly what Abe just said, right? Which is like it gets a sense of movement mm-hmm. and so on, right? The truth is that it allows him more editing options. Right, mm. being on Steadicam allows him to edit this film in a more dynamic way, which he needs to for reasons you'll see in a minute. So, be just to to lay this out a little yeah, more clearly. Yeah, I think I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah. To lay this out a little more clearly, it's really easy to cut between things that are in motion. Right, that's just a basic editing principle. When something's in motion, you cut on the motion, and it sort of disguises the edit. <clears throat> and can I jump in on a of course for just a sure. second on this? Because I think you're both right and you're wrong. You're right in the way that Nolan does it. I think you're wrong generally. Okay. Unless you have someone who <laughs> As a is, human being? Or what do you mean? No, well, just if they don't know what they're doing, motion... Like, I would steer away from telling, like, an amateur... Like, someone who's trying to break into filmmaking or camera work or editing or directing. I w- if you haven't had worked with these tools before... Like, I wouldn't push you to think that motion is easy to cut with. I think that the truer thing is sympathetic motion. Meaning, if I cut to a shot that is around, if not the be- closer it is to identical, the better, the same speed and motion as right. the other yes. camera that you're cutting away from, then it does become a lot smoother. But if there's not sympathetic motion, you notice it more. So it's the kind of thing where you have to be very precise. And that kind of makes the, what I thought you were going with here, which is, I, I think it's interesting because I almost thought you were going to talk about this exclusively, 
which is that if you watch all of Nolan's filmography, he clearly has one speed. Yes, that's correct. He goes the same yes, he does. speed. One like, speed. He has like sometimes he has a little creep, but like when he's moving on people's back or like I'm sure you're gonna talk about a lot of these sequences, so I don't wanna like steal them from you. But like just if you watch it and you you can elucidate after watching like one or two of his big shots, like when Joker comes in at the party or something like that, then the speed of the the camera op, how fast they walk is they like are on a meter. Yep. He clearly thinks that there is like a preferred like cinematic movement yep. and lensing choice. That's correct. Uh, he, uh, he does yeah. not do a lot of variety. It does have a sameness feel to it. There's strategy behind that. Uh, that I'm going to get to in a right. minute, but you're yeah. absolutely right. But because of that, it means that his cuts are very clean. They are. To they're point. clean. They're actually not that clean all the time. I would argue. Oh, I hate it. Uh, I hate cutting for motion. He's really well. I yes, I know that. But just so that we, we don't get, have to sometimes. But yeah. well, he always has to. Uh, there's basically only two ways to edit his film, and that is to cut on motion or to cut on a hard sound, like a jarring cut on purpose. Those are the two things yes. that he does. Um, and it's another type of motion. Yeah, it is another. T- that's exactly right. Now, just so, I don't want to confuse future filmmakers, and I don't know how many of you are listening to this podcast, but the principle cut on motion is uh, editing 101. Abe is further qualifying it when he's saying, yeah, but you have to have sympathetic motion. Absolutely right. But it's still a basic editing tenet, and it's one that Nolan is employing with this camera strategy for sure. Yeah. Now, And if you're an editor, just try it yourself. Yeah, like, you'll have- see it. Yeah. Take a footage of two shots, two shots of someone slamming their hand on a desk. Try cutting it before they slam the hand on the desk, when they slam the hand on the desk, after they slam the hand on the desk, and you tell me which one is yeah, cleanest. That's correct. Then it'll, you will know it clearer that no definition can no definition can be clearer than you understanding that. Principle. A thing, by the way, that is very memorably done. That exact test is all is very memorably done with the joker uh when he says you want to see a magic trick look at with a cut into the oh, magic right. trick yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that one's and that's great and it's awesome it's also uh, fantastic right it's really well done uh so look here's uh i don't think this is a conspiracy theory i think you would agree with me here the the reason nolan needs these editing options the reason he's so pot committed to this is because he has major runtime problems with this film major <laughs> runtime problems. So no, it's not a conspiracy. Right. It, it's like, look, it's a three hour movie. Superhero movies should right. not be that long. Uh, nobody thinks they should be that long. Christopher Nolan also doesn't DC think they should does. be that long. <laughs> right, right. Because the, right. They've lost their way. Uh, this mm. film is incredibly long and you'll notice he doesn't sit around and fuck around in his scenes. His scenes do not linger. Like he has mm-hmm. a mountain of uh, exposition and story to tell, and so he has to create these editing options that allow him to zip in and out of scenes, so that this thing doesn't become a four-hour tragedy, right? Yeah. Uh, and he seems to be doubling down because if Tenant is any yes signifier, uh, he's got like it's hard to follow. So. Well, that's the thing is like he he uses the Steadicam to create a pace that's right at the limits of human comprehension for dialogue, right? And in fact, I think the Steadicam mm-hmm. allows a lot of his sort of gobbledygook dialogue to just sort of wash over you. 
so he's kind of putting a Band-Aid on Yes, it, that's the Steadicam is to fix a writing problem. The writing mm-hmm. is so transparently functional, and and not, not all the time, but a lot of the time it's very functional uh, mm-hmm. and expositional. And by exposition, I just mean that it's explaining the mechanics of the story or giving you this complicated piece of information you need to carry on to the next thing. And Nolan mm-hmm. is very intentionally using the steady can to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just let, just go with it. Just go with it. Just go with it. It'll happen. And mm-hmm. that way you, it, his pacing and his camera work, let you sit back and let the movie happen to you because it feels like you're on this mission. You're on this trajectory and the movie is coursing ahead, whether you're getting it or not. So to give it slightly more like specificity, there are numerous times in this movie where people speak in themes, not words, not drama, themes, right? There are lines that are very famous, such as, well, yeah, you either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain, <laughs> right? You have all these lines that like people that don't line. talk well, like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> Like, like uh, the only reason I even say that he says yeah is because he's answering a question that's very clumsy. Right, right. Uh, By the way, the next line after he finishes defending Batman is the Russian ballerina who apparently feeling very frisky that night is like, perhaps you are the caped crusader, right? It's like, yeah, man, uh, we're really (laughs) jumping a lot of conversation steps to get to this dialogue. And right. uh, he's not. That's not the only time. Like almost every line Michael Caine has is uh, barely a line of dialogue and mostly introducing a theme. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, know your limits, Master Wayne. You know, like just, <laughs> just like stuff that's like know your limits, Master Wayne. Right, right. It's stuff that's like adds a theme. Uh, that's some a, men just want to watch the world. <laughs> Yeah, he's. Uh, I can't afford yeah, to know him, Alfred. Yeah. On that date, uh, <laughs> you're like to tell. I told you so, Alfred. On that date, I won't want to. Right? It's just it's so many things yeah. that are like either plant and payoff, or yeah. their character, their character summaries, or their themes. Right? <laughs> so like that's bad writing. And like I'm sorry. I know this. I know I'm tearing apart this fantastic movie that, by the way, I love. But it's bad writing. Uh, and why is he getting away <laughs> with this? Again, part of it is it's that the motion. It's not. Go ahead. Go ahead. Make your point. I mean, I. It, it's functional writing. That's very subjective. It's functional writing. Yeah. It's um. It's writing that uh is very on the nose for the thing that is the movie. The movie is usually starving for. I think. Yeah. If I, I'm not, I, maybe you can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself in saying that one of my problems with these types of lines are not that they're not memorable or trailerable or anything like that, or even that they feel dumb. They're not poorly written. It's just that there's no, almost no setup for these kinds of things that then when it kind of is that gotcha line or that buzzer beater feeling, I'm like, well, did you earn that though? Is it really a buzzer beater? Does it really, is it really the salient line that's going to unlock my understanding of the story because that's how you're treating it. Yes, that's correct. You're giving it the space and like the gravitas of a line that goes, oh, aha, mm, a lean forward moment, they would say in film school. 
Uh, and it's just not because it doesn't, I go, Oh yeah, that's true. You know, but it doesn't make me go like, I see what's happening here. Cause I've already seen what's happening here. I know. Okay. So the metaphor is that, uh, he's the Joker, the guy who wants to watch the world bird. That's the Joker, right? right. Yeah. And some men just want to watch the world. Oh, it's a metaphor. You know, it's like, <laughs> I got a little, well, they also, I got there. They a also cut sooner. to a picture of the Joker while he says it, uh, just so you know exactly what they're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. just no your limits, mastering. Oh, really? Is that the problem with Batman? Right. <laughs> is that is is that his problem that he's just one man? He's getting old. These, yeah. Well, I, I figure. I mean, and again, kind of, in some level, kudos to uh, Christopher Nolan for taking on a Batman with like more heady themes. You know what I mean? Like like more heady themes and also yeah. a more complicated plot device to communicate in a superhero movie. Like, most superhero movies aren't going to take on, hey, listen, Batman can't go on forever. Who replaces Batman? That's I mean, that's, that's true. I don't idea. know much about comic books, but I, I feel like that isn't credit. Because almost, all, like, uh, from what I understand, uh, he took a lot from The Killing Joke, which is all of this. Sure, sure, sure. It's the immovable object nonsense. You know, it's like all that stuff. Um, and it's like, what what's the point of the Joker um, the, you know, the guy who's absolute chaos, aging of chaos, all these complex themes and heady themes where he has to deal about like, who is Batman, who is Bruce Wayne, all these questions. Uh, I think that had already kind of been done for him, but, but I mean, not yes, in a he movie. is tackling it. Not in not a in movie, a movie. Yes. like in a comic book. Sure. But in a movie, like the movies tend to pick and simplify the stories for the general audience. Yes. And Nolan didn't do that. So I kind of admire him for that. But as yeah. you said, and this is why I call it bad writing, maybe bad's a little heavy-handed, but the movie acts as though all these lines have tremendous import, and these people are all very smart and uh, thoughtful, and the reality of it is, no, they're skipping a lot of steps that would be done through dramaturgy, uh, mm-hmm. and they're getting away yeah. with it because Nolan's using a steady cam. That steady cam is making this stuff wash right over you. Uh, yeah, and it makes you feel this is all moving yeah, it's at all the right happening. pace. Hey, we're all, it's going, yeah. the movie's going, so great. It really does make you loosen your grip on uh, feeling like you need to understand and control everything. Like, it really does feel like it's going to get presented to you. Um, again, smart director trick. Uh, and it, it he knows how to make that work for him. Also, the Steadicam allows him to cut in little... Steadicam door dollied inserts of like things like the clown masks or Man. things like yeah. uh, the bills on the there ground. There are great images. In there. Yeah. yeah. And because he's always on pace with this motion, because we're literally like, you know, on an escalator here being carried into story heaven, I guess, uh, he can mm. just cut stuff in at whenever he wants and uh, yeah. give us information. He's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, man, no it's really talented. Time, yeah, there's a lot of talent remember there. Remember that time fairly recently when a whole trilogy of, like, the trilogy, the next n- original Star Wars yeah, yeah. trilogy, yeah, yeah. was constantly trying to be Christopher Nolan? That's how effective he was. He is very effective. So whether effective. or not we can poke holes in it doesn't matter to audiences it works, man. It really well, works. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna dial your I'm gonna dial your deflation back a little bit and let me finish okay. my argument because no, uh, there there's there's more effective uh, storytellers out there than Christopher Nolan. 
Uh, it does yeah. work for this movie. Nobody's saying that it's not achieving the things it's trying to achieve. It absolutely is. Uh, and that's I'm just explaining what it's doing. Uh, okay. But also, yeah. Yeah. yeah, people are imitating him because he because his was successful. Because it's successful. Yeah, that doesn't uh, yeah, make but, it good. Or it doesn't make but it. But do continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to temper it because there's gonna, you know, there's gonna be some Nolan heads, and they're what? gonna come it's in fine. and they're gonna be like, uh, "Put look, down that Batman." We're in the we're- <laughs> Step away from like, the Batman. Know uh, your limits, Master yeah, no, Adam. I think can't afford to know, man. Can't afford to. Yeah. Uh, no. So look, though, I'm not saying that uh, Dark Knight is bad. I'm also not even saying the screenplay is bad. I'm saying that there are lines of dialogue that are not artfully rendered or even artfully performed that Nolan uses this tool to sort of back off our sense <clears throat> of being like, what? what? Uh, and let us sort of and let I go. I yield that yeah, to yeah. you, absolutely. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, also, just by the way, the Steadicam allows us to throw away lines of dialogue entirely. So like... Uh, he does a lot of cutting into inserts or other shots while people are talking. Um, and most of the time, it's because the line itself is not a great line, but it's reinforcing a theme. Like, for instance, the one you just mentioned where uh, some men like to watch the world burn and then we watch the Joker, so we know what mm-hmm. he means. But mm-hmm. a better version of it is a lot of the exposition of the plan that the Joker had to rob the bank. A lot of that stuff happens uh, where we can't see the people's mouths. You know what I mean? And so, and we're the steady cam is giving us sort of a sense of scale and also layout of the room and stuff. And mm-hmm. we are able to throw away some of the lines because they're all sort of decoration of what the actual scene is, which is what the camera is telling us. And mm-hmm. he also, by the way, because it's in motion, uh, sometimes just has lines happen off screen that he then rewrites and replaces later in post. Right? That's mm-hmm. the thing he does pretty regularly in this movie by the way he did mm-hmm. it much more in the dark knight rises with the bane voice right yeah, remember remember how the bane true. voice was a totally really different voice before yeah. uh like in a trailer before the movie came out that means he didn't like it but because he had a mask on this guy he just replaced it with a totally different voice and maybe different lines just like star wars did mm-hmm. with darth vader <laughs> he's really lying cheating and stealing to tell the truth well, yeah right that's filmmaking and like you i admire that yeah. because it's a tool that gives him more flexibility so like again if he needs to cut pieces of the script which he almost certainly did right or mm. if he needs to de-emphasize a performance or if he needs to just trim the scene down beyond what the writing would allow him to do using the steady cam lets that happen Right, it just gives him that sort of that fluidity to make that happen, and you don't feel inhibited right. by it. So, just another example of this. So, because he shoots things on a Steadicam uh, and doesn't do coverage, like sometimes lines that are like supposed to be jokes, but they don't translate. Uh, <laughs> he gets away with that because he shoots them on this sort of moving camera, so we don't think about it. For example, right. in Hong Kong. Uh, Lucius Fox has a line where he's explaining this program he invented on a phone that basically through sonar allows uh, Batman to see the layout of a room and the line Mm -hmm. is the line is uh, that like oh you're using sonar kind of like and then Morgan Freeman says submarine Mr. Wayne 
like a submarine. Supposed to be a bat right. joke. Instead of bat. Yeah. Supposed to it's be a bat, bat joke. joke. And because he shoots it in this like flat, steady cam 50-50, you don't laugh at it. Mm-hmm. And also you're not like cringing <laughs> at it. You know? Like it just kind of washes past <clears throat> you. Right. It's, yeah, it just kind of washes past you. Right. You just go, mm-hmm. mm-hmm right. Mm-hmm. Like completely ridiculous. Uh, another example of like how he uses the steady cam to sort of cut away from stuff. Or make implausible lines work when they shouldn't. Uh, almost everything that Hong Kong investor says when he's explaining how he took the gangsters' money from them is absurd. Mm-hmm. But because mm-hmm. he uses this moving camera to to sort of like show us the plan happening, right? Like he's explaining the plan, and then we're watching the truck shut, and we're watching the cops not get the not get the money they were supposed to get on the sting. Really, Ocean's and the, Eleven in it. Yeah, yeah, and the criminals being like, yeah, I guess that's okay. This completely absurd plot point goes over. It's completely absurd, right? It is, yeah. They're, they're, Am I wrong? Uh, I No, no. I, there, I noticed several times. Like, it's been a while since I watched Dark Knight. That was like, there's so much stuff. Like, the Harvey Dent stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it's like no one would do that. Like he wouldn't believe he wouldn't believe for a second that Commissioner Gordon when he's like, No, they don't know why they're here. They're just setting up a perimeter. <laughs> they don't know who's doing it. They don't know right. if I'm here, if my family's right. here. It's like, what do you ta- what did you tell them to get here? Like, why'd you call the police and tell them? Like what just get here? Right. Is that what you're saying? And like it's just like it, there's so much unseen shit. That you just take for granted in a Nolan See, film. Nolan, one of the things he's fucking excellent at is knowing what's off camera. He's very good at that. the prestige, baby. Yeah, yeah. He, right. The prestige is, by the way, if you haven't seen that film, the prestige is basically Chris Nolan's love letter to filmmaking. Uh, yeah, it's like, here's my tricks. Right. I'm showing you all my right. tricks. I wrote this. I wrote an After Hours episode about this that we just never finished or never shot. But it was right. essentially like... Uh, I've heard this. Yeah, before. yeah. It's yeah. it's talking about how the prestige is explaining the the tricks that filmmakers use to uh to tell their stories. Specifically Nolan. What's that? Like specifically Nolan. Yeah, he specifically like, does it, correct. Nolan's because he is like the sleight of hand yeah. magician. Like not all filmmakers are that. No, you know, no, but like, that's what he is. Like, so all the questions yeah. you would you would normally ask in a movie they get kind of swept away because his relentless sort of motion, that relentless pace mm-hmm. that allows him to modulate information excludes questions. And his screenplay is just a step or two above what you expect in terms of complexity. So you're kind of trying to right, catch yeah. up and he's always yeah. keeping it just a little in front of you. So you don't have time to be like, what the fuck? Those gangsters would never let that guy do that. Or like, yeah, he's not a dumb dumb. He knows what yeah. he can get away with, right. but he does try to get away with. Stuff. Yes. Oh, he gets away, and he does and a lot. You don't know, and he does, and I, I'm sure there's ones that I haven't, or times that I just gave him, like, you know what? I give you the benefit of the doubt on that one. Sure. You know, just because why? I'm having fun. I'll be honest. I'm having a yeah, good I'm time. having a good time. <laughs> you know, and that really matters. That's the power of that's one of the power of movies. Yeah. Like, and he's good at that. If you're knocking it out of the park eight times in a row the ninth time you can make kind of like something seem like it's more impressive because people are already on your side i just think it's interesting when you contrast nolan with somebody like spielberg who used to do the action blockbusters right like that he used to be the voice Mm -hmm. of that 
Spielberg is a lot more specific with basically everything that he does. Um, he's a lot more designed, whereas Nolan, you really get the feeling like he kind of has to get in the scene on the day and like uh, maps it out. Like, okay, I got the state cam. Let's put this on state cam. Let's walk it through. Yeah, yeah, we'll get this, and then this will happen. And like, he gets like he basically blocks it with a camera and shoots. Mm-hmm. That's what it really feels like he does. Um, and but he's his genius is knowing that by doing that, he can exclude things from your point of view that would bother you, and he can uh, decide when to cut away or when to move things around so that uh, your comprehension increases. So like that's to, right. to, yeah. to give you another example of this. Uh, so <laughs> the Hong Kong thing is ridiculous, which is why we're basically not on that guy until we need to be on him. Um, whereas every time the Joker's on scene on screen, the only time we're cutting away from him is uh, when we need a reaction shot, right? We need a reaction shot or mm-hmm. we need a crucial piece of information. Otherwise, the Joker stays on screen. Why? He's because captivating. He's riveting. He's captivating. Yeah, he's yeah, riveting. Exactly. Also, most of the time with uh, the Joker, the pace slows down a little bit when he's on screen. Like we really slow down for I the think Joker. they built in more time, yeah. So it, I think it's, functionally he serves that as a screenplay. He, it's, yeah. He's the thing that everyone's watching of like, what are you going right. to do, do next? What are you going to do next? Because the, that's how the Joker works. But Heath Ledger's also, you know, eating up the scenery. It's like, I'm going to take a little bit more time too because yeah. he does this thing yeah. and, you know, like the editors probably milked it more than they would have normally, even from just a script They knew they had something special uh, from the yeah. way he was, from probably scene one. He he was special from scene one. Everybody knew it. Uh, Everyone knew it. Yeah. yeah. It's a, the, obviously, it's a, a bitter pill because of his death. Uh, it, I think the, the his death made us pay more attention to how great his work was, but I don't think we would have watched mm-hmm. it if he'd stayed alive and been like, this was whatever. Like, I, I think we would have always thought it was I a think great we would, performance. He, he would have gone on to have an insane I think career. so. I think it would have been, I mean, and he'd also already been in Brokeback Mountain two years before. Uh, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, but I mean, I think he was just getting I think started, so too. You know? I totally like agree. Like he, this opened up a whole new avenue of like character like roles that would he would not have been considered at completely all. you know and he's now like okay so it's like Heath Ledger or Daniel Day-Lewis right you know yes like, yeah I think that, so that's the kind of stuff I think we're that talking was, about yeah. he had a real deep fire in him uh that this role brought out but other roles you saw glimpses of it um all, mm-hmm. Brokeback Mountain again comes to mind but there's others a Knight's and, Tale in any case uh to to get slightly back on purpose now I've done I've explained how Nolan's using the Steadicam to sort of patch up the bad parts of his work. And by bad, I mean less effective, right? He's using the Steadicam to cover, sort of pay yeah. for a multitude of sins. But he's also using it in some very creative and incredible ways. So, like, one of the things that he does is, because he's constantly in motion, anytime he stops the camera, it has a really dramatic effect of uh, emphasis, okay? Um, a lot of times, by mm-hmm. the way... When he'll stop camera, he'll he'll switch to a directly dollying in motion. Um, that might yeah, it's like the drop in the beat. Yes, right. It's it's exactly what it's like. It's like oh, we really switched the motion here, and so you feel it a lot more effectively. Um, here's a couple examples. So the one that I keep bringing up as a joke is uh, the moment that Bruce meets Harvey Dent in person. 
because remember, the thesis of this movie is Batman needs to find a replacement, right? So mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne meets Harvey Dent for dinner. Uh, he brings his ballerina, and uh, and Harvey Dent brings uh, Rachel. And so they're having this mm-hmm. conversation, right? They're having dinner chat, and the dolly and the camera's sort of spinning around, right? Uh, and then suddenly there's a moment where Harvey begins to explain why Batman needs to exist. Why does he need to exist? And the camera stops. It just stops. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to a push-in. A push-in of him talking and a push-in of Bruce listening. And because of that, we get the line, die a hero, live long enough to become a villain. That theme, it lands. Right? It's like, even though it's a silly line, it lands. Because he uses this distinct camera motion to like underline it. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, another example. The Joker interrupting the fundraiser, which, by the way, what a great scene. A lot of improv in it, uh, uh, you know, and we're following this like crazy steady. Like we're we're basically we're following him walking through this audience and then we're spinning around the Joker as he's, you know, got the knife to Rachel's mouth. And then it stops right as he begins to tell the story of you want to know how I got my scars. The camera stops there. Why? Because that's when we're scared. The motion has stopped it. Because I'm the Joker, Yeah, because he's a Because I'm hilarious, babes. No, it's like the stopped <laughs> motion makes the tension rise, not the other way. Right? Because he's because he's built this motion thing. So when the camera's like, nope, now you're going to focus on this. We feel like Rachel feels right. we can't escape. Right? We're trapped. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's... um. It's like brake pads. Yes. <laughs> it's yep. like look at that now. Yeah. Now you're gonna look at this. And it and also that's a point we don't wanna stop. We wanna we want to and a lot of filmmakers would like heighten the spin, right? Because now we're really getting out of control. Mm-hmm. Nolan's like, no, no, no. Now we're gonna stop and listen to him tell the story. It's like, oh God. Right. You know? Which are kind of both the same moves. Yeah, they are. Right? Yes. They're identical. They're, that's techniques. his other tactic. Right. That's the thing. And the steady cam allows him to do it in a very effective way. So a second way that he's using the steady cam that I think is really interesting and creative is that instead of doing even just regular coverage, like even just putting on a steady cam and sort of, you know, dolling into people, he will put a scene on a steady cam and just walk all the way around people while they explain something. Right? He does it yeah, a lot. Yeah, he'll do like the bullet, he'll do bullet yes. time, but real yes, time. That's correct. And people and it's just kind of he'll he'll try to he does them as mini oneers, and he clearly has the ability to script the lines yes, to fit that time and place the yep. bodies. He probably designs that all in his head because almost always there's a kind of ping pong. Like, so all kind of something you learn when you're following drama with camera yep. is that there's this kind of ping pong of energy. Alexander McKendrick calls it the cherub. Uh, and it's this thing that they talk about which is like who's passing who's passing the pointal like the focal point mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. each other usually it's the person saying the line but sometimes someone says a line and someone is reacting as the focal point the point is you want to maximize in a shot as many as you can and if you're going around in circles and want to keep the continuity of that spiral um, you have to design what lines will be off screen and what What, what won't and how fast is the thing moving and all of them feel very and it's i think it's also 
one of the reasons that I said earlier that when you watch Nolan films, for the most part, this cross all of his movies, he has this kind of specific timing because I think it's the pacing and it's the meter, so to speak. You know, if we're talking about poetry, it's the meter that he's used to. So he can script a scene and he can imagine the camera moving at that pace and how close they would presumably be away from each other and be like, yeah, I could get that line, that line, that line, that line. And then that line's fine to be off screen. Right. Yeah. The scene works. He, it could be designed as early as when he scripts it. That's a hundred percent true. I also think it's totally possible that he, while this thing is being lit, which we'll talk about in a second, that he goes and meticulously rehearses it with the steady cam and the actors until he gets like, this is a very satisfying move. And you know, all he needs to do is get two of those for the day. Right. So like, for instance, right. There's a scene around the bat signal and uh, in it, this is like after the Hong Kong guy got away with, you know, absconding to Hong Kong. Okay. And uh, the plot point behind it is there's somebody, somebody leaked the information, right? Either it was in Harvey Dent's office or it was in commissioner or that at that point, Lieutenant Gordon's office. And they're blaming each other and Batman's sitting there listening to him like a, you know, like a grim judge. Right. And the city cam is walking around them explaining this and zeroes in on Batman when he says, if you get him, if I get him to you, can you get him to talk? That's the end of the Dolly scene, like or the end of the Steadicam mm-hmm. scene, right? So, and he does it again with uh, Michael Caine's character Alfred and Bruce Wayne when they're explaining about, hey, maybe uh, we can, we need to abscond with the ballet. Like they're explaining that piece in the Batcave. It stops right on Michael Caine's, like, oh yes, I have a plan. That kind of line. So mm-hmm. basically, he does this sweeping camera stuff. To the effect of we're getting like the problem being sorted out, like the exposition of this problem is getting sorted out. They're doing plans, 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 plans. And then the next unit of action can begin on this key line. And so that's what the steady cam tells us. Exposition, exposition, exposition. Here's the next line. And we move on. Right. I, I think that's kind of impressive. Don't you? Yeah, I think it's designed. Yes, it is designed. So that's what's impressive is that it's. He has the time and he's he has the time, money, comfort to make these scenes work yes, in that he does. way. And he knows it yes, works. He, does. he has the confidence about it working. Well, and it leads that's what's impressive is that it's on this high scaffolding. Yep. And it's a big offer. Yes, it is. Having people say lines off screen, studios are almost always gonna be mad about that. If they don't yeah. feel like something's working, they're just gonna grab at straws and say Hey, maybe uh, we just need a shot of that person talking. And it's like, I didn't get that. Uh, I shot it this way. This is how it was intended to be intended to be shown. Right. And uh, if you're dealing with the studio, they don't like that answer. He has the confidence to be like, you're going to like it or I'm going to convince you I'm right. And that's the most impressive. It is. Is that he's he's right most of the time. Yeah, I think he is. I think he's right kind of all the time in the sense that show me the place in this movie where these issues that I'm pointing out actually bump. They don't, they don't yeah, bump. I think when he starts losing us in like tenant and yeah, stuff, that's when it stops working is because right. he's now got the golden voice. He cannot be edited right. and he's getting yeah, lazy. That's correct. You know, I agree with that. So, he's like, I can get away with this shit 
it's different from I know I can get away from this shit is I can get right. away with a lesser product. So let me also say, and this is like a, a really important creative use of the Steadicam, this circling thing that he does, which by the way, again, a really great way to make us not have to invest in all the ins and outs of the exposition, which I think is a big part of why he's doing that. But the other reason is that those Steadicam moves show off the entire world. So we these like oh, 360 yeah, Steadicam shots are like, and this happened on an actual rooftop and we lit all these buildings, which means the budget for this shot went way up, way up, right? Because they had to spend, they had to hire more crew, they had to rent more lights, they had to spend more time lighting. They ba- like basically that's how he shows off the real budget that he's got is these gigantic sweeping mm-hmm. shots uh, that are expensive and, and time consuming, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, and also that I say that works. I mean, both every time I can think of it happening, it really works because it's like, man, this is an epic story. Uh, and mm-hmm. as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. I know that was like seven hours to like that. Uh, maybe even more. Uh, yeah, it was probably pre-rigging, right. and th- when they got there on the day, there's so many, like, they probably got a page uh, that if day, that. you know? Like, now, it's hard to imagine what limitations mean in a movie like The Dark Knight, but if I if they had any kind of budget constraints, which I'm sure they did, uh, choosing to shoot a scene with that amount of lighting that it, like and work would probably also necessitate using a Steadicam to trim time of shooting down. Right? So like Right, because you can move you can faster, move faster and you don't have to lay down dollar Correct. track. So in a way his choice to see the entire world, which he does a bunch, also means he must rely on a steady cam to make his day work, his shoot day work. So in a sense, mm-hmm. uh using a steady cam may have grown out of the the desire that he had to see this whole landscape, right? So those two decisions sort of grew up together creatively, I would say. Um, And they're very impressive. And don't think by the way, that, uh, that just because he's on Steadicam, it always means things look epic. So like a lot of times uh, he'll shoot a fight scene on an, on a Steadicam to give some lateral motion. But like a lot of the stuff that's actually dangerous or a lot of the action is pretty contained within that frame, which is sort of the opposite of how he's used the Steadicam for dialogue. Right. So a lot of Batman's fight scenes, uh, like we're kind of we're kind of steady camming with him side to side. And then like the camera's kind of moving over, panning over to catch this bad guy, then that bad guy. And it's not it's not a Zack Snyder film. Right? It's not a really epic fight scene. It's very like uh functional. And I think because of the sweeping epicness of the other steady cam stuff we kind of don't feel disappointed by that. Uh, like, it, even though it's really long, it's on a longer lens and it's dis- it's definitively more contained. I think that Nolan understands that things kind of blend together in a movie like this. So it feels like the fight scenes are more epic than they actually are. Uh, that's Because he's built this expectation in our brains. Yeah. And because he's built a language in our brains that's a lot wider lens, more dynamic. So when he gets to these punch them out scenes, they're all kind of on a, they're on like a 50, they're on like slightly longer lens and uh, yeah. they're very contained because honestly, Batman is kind of stupid. 
Like, you know, it's like seeing people punch <laughs> each other in those suits is kind of dumb. And I think seeing less yeah. of it is good. It makes it pass more. Um, because that's why nighttime is great. Yeah, right. That's Batman. why Batman's always at night. So that doesn't, and they, they moved the away night. from that yeah, in the dark night rises and it was a mistake. Yeah. And, uh, compression of frame, yes. as you pointed yes. out by restrictive movement and longer lensing is, uh, non-conventional. Mm-hmm. That's, that's mm-hmm. not the, uh, that's not the education that people give you when they say, how do you use the beast of Steadicam or Dolly or just motion in general? You feel it more on like the thirty, mm-hmm. you know. You you feel it on the twenty. Yeah, the wider lenses. Uh, Correct. You you get on a fifty. It's like, why are we even moving the camera? Unless we're moving the camera twenty five feet, you're not feeling it that right. much. Well, you can always kind of tell. Uh, but like, he's yeah, he's putting on forties and fifties yeah, for the fight scenes in particular. Probably. It's very surprising. Uh. But again, that's a smart filmmaker who kind of understands the limitations of what he's got to work with, even if he's got the, all the budget in the world. So yeah, it yeah. just last last like creative thing that he does with the Steadicam. There are a lot of shots where because he's on a Steadicam, the operator can just like grab stuff that would normally necessitate cutting to a different thing, and it makes mm-hmm. the world feel more alive. Example: uh, There's a shot where it's it's the Hong Kong invasion. Uh, Batman sort of flies through a window and then gets up and starts punching dudes. And that's all in one shot. Mm-hmm. Like it's literally like cameras there for the breaking through the window. Then he gets up and we then start walking with him while he starts punching guys. And it's like, Oh shit. Uh, if like, it feels much more tense and like all those things are seen together and the artifice is gone. Like it's happening in a real world mm-hmm. because of that. And, uh, you don't mm-hmm. see steady cam done that way very often. Um, yeah, plus he uses um, IMAX a yes, lot, he does. too, yeah. and that is not no. easy on a steady, no, that's steady right. cam, because that camera is enormous. Right, so that's the thing like uh, that I, I wanted to mention, but I forgot. So like Steadicam is actually uh, a grueling tool for the operator. Oh, yeah. Like the operator needs to have long breaks because uh, because the, the camera is very heavy, even though they have like a... They have a, a rod that basically takes some of the weight off. They still have to hold this very heavy camera uh, mm-hmm. and operate it. Like, you know, and it's kind of like an athletic performance. Um, we had a guy named Dave that we used to use. He was rad, but he basically could do like, what, 30 minutes or something before he'd need like a 15 minute break. Depends on the movie. Yeah. You don't want to keep them right. running a lot um, because it, it hurts their back. Reasonably, You're yeah. basically taking all of the shoulder weight that someone usually would be, shoulder and arms. Uh, there's still a little bit on that. It's still grueling everywhere. But you're taking the brunt of it uh, on your, you know, like... On your body. Lower yeah, back. On your back and your arms. Yeah. And this and guy, that Dave... can only take it. So if uh, you're doing it all day... Yeah. You know? This guy, Dave, was like uh, stronger than I'll ever be. Uh, oh, he's yeah, super, super fit. fit. Great yeah. guy, great operator. Uh, very easy to weir- work with. Did great work, and I'm using yeah. him as an illustration for like how hard it really is. Which again creates another time constraint for Chris Nolan. You know, <clears> so you got to think <throat> about like his process for making this movie ha- has to be something like maybe he's planned it all in pre-production, but also maybe what he's doing is hey, we need to light all this because I'm going to see all this stuff, okay? So this is the world. And then he gets there with the actors, 
And he's like, I have a general idea how the scene goes. We're going to block it like that. And then with the steady cam, he kind of works on all the kinks while they finish lighting and then they go. You know, like that's that's how mm-hmm. I think he's doing this movie, which is uh, a surprisingly fluid process given what this movie is, right? Or do you think yeah, he meticulously uh, planned mean, it? Well, it's a multifaceted production right. that comes up with so many things. Like they broke Pittsburgh at one point, <laughs> I think, for this movie. And like... Right. No, yeah, honestly, yeah, they, they yeah. like had they had a huge they like knocked down like signs and stuff, and they, they like had to pause production. Uh, that stuff happens. Uh, you have hundreds of extras in streets, and you're like, I don't know, two of the two of the extras are drunk, or right. you know, like right, 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 there's right. so many problems right. that like you, oh, okay, we can't do that now. Suddenly, well, then the rest of the plan is screwed. So even the in a way. Uh, run and gun, which is the term we use kind of for like, you know, uh, amateur, you know, kind of like stealing shots, getting in, getting things done real quick. Uh, that's most possible when it's like you and a boom operator camera, you as in camera right. and like two actors. Um, it's more true that in bigger productions, you're, gonna not just you're gonna have to figure out how to be running right. done sometimes right. maybe not in the same way but you're gonna have to adapt like i f- i guess that's the big thing is adapt or yeah die. of course i mean if, if you're gonna be a filmmaker at all you have to learn that uh unless you're stanley kubrick because he is made of you can be unrelentless and just say well then the day is right. done we're trying it tomorrow if you have the money okay and then that's on the producers yeah. and finding money and finding solutions. It's just a different type of problem solving, but he decided that that was the only, that was the only type of problem solving that he could allow. I, I, I remember there's that. I was going to huh? say, I, I, yeah. uh, I personally find his process to be really, uh, amazing. Like, I think it's really amazing in some ways because I know that as a director, he's picked, the big rewarding set pieces he needs to see. Like, I know that he has things that he's like, I got to see this and I got to see that. And I got it like, and he's building his library of shots and language around that. Uh, I mean, obviously that's how scouting works and how all filmmaking works. I just think it's really interesting that he's chosen to use this tool. That's actually a pretty malleable tool to get himself there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, I think that it tells us a lot about him. Like one thing is the guy's very practical. Like this is a practical filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, like now sometimes he's also very artistic. I'm not minimizing him when I say that, but the basic building block, like the spine of this movie from a filmmaking grammar point of point of view is smart. And it's also practical because he understands the problems in his movie that he has to iron out as a director. The script, the runtime stuff, the building, uh, like you have to build all these lights and you have to spend all this time setting up the shot. So he understands Steadicam is the only way to make this movie work and get achieve the effect. I think that's incredible. And the other thing that's incredible is uh, he's so ballsy. He's a ballsy director. Uh, he's very bold because the way that he shoots scenes, just like you said, Abe, means he intentionally throws things away 
that he doesn't need or want. And he lives with, he lives on these Steadicam shots and it's like, hey, this is what we got. Uh, I'm not going to get singles. I'm not yeah. going to cover this line. Do you have that covered? No, no. we shot this. Uh, it takes an amazing amount of confidence to make a film that way, to not just cover yourself, right? Like, I I yeah, would cover I mean, myself. That's how I've always done directing. And I'm like, <clears throat> maybe I should do what Chris Nolan does. Because it's it's put into your head your entire you know education to cover your ass. Because if you don't cover your ass and you're wrong about it, you don't work again. Right. That's correct. If you don't cover your ass and you're right about it, you get called bold on podcasts, <laughs> you know? Right, 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 right. So, so it's a risk reward thing for every individual. He's playing. He is the type of person that is like, yeah, I'm confident in what I can do uh, that. People are going to love yep. this. And uh, so I'm going to do it. And guess what? He was right he about was. it. I, so like to return to our original thesis, uh, why doesn't the Academy think this is, uh, worth giving a best picture nod aside from the politics and the directing nod. I think it's because uh, they see the pragmatism of this film and the shooting choices as a way of patching up problems the way I do. And they think the award is n- not for that. You know I mean? It's, it's for those awards are for, are not for practical or uh, intelligent decisions like that. Therefore, like artistry, right? right? <clears throat> Telling a story in a new visual way, uh, which he doesn't do here. He really doesn't. And uh, I don't think they're wrong about that, honestly. I, d- I do think The Dark Knight is awesome as it is. Uh, his choice as a director and writer are more functional than they are artistic, and I don't hate the Academy's decision not to reward that. Uh, yeah. I think you might be right about being right about the academy you might be right about all that uh i think the academy doesn't choose these types of movies because the academy doesn't care for high concept they care about some high concept birdman was high concept Mm. Mm. i I, was it yeah it was uh it's a reaction it's not high concept it's a reaction to high concept it's reaction to superhero movies which they were a fan of but also the Um, like it's high concept in a different way. Like it's not high concept. Like uh, here's a it's high concept. Here's yeah. a spaceman doing I a spaceman that, thing. It's a high concept. Like right. It's not like a sci-fi. And like that's why his other films, which aren't literally a Batman, right, 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 right. Uh, we're also not. We're also quote unquote snubbed. You know, like the Prestige or something like that. It's why his most beloved films by the Academy or these prestige awards, the ones that were considered the Palme d'Ors that, you know, are memento and following, you know, it's like the more grounded down to earth narratives. I think it's let like, I think you're right about it. Everything you said about Noel. Oh, I'm so I glad. Think Hollywood, if we're taking the Academy as like kind of the um, barometer of that prestige, like specifically with their prestige right. words, like screenplay and, uh, director and pitcher. <clears throat> I think it's because they have a particular taste. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So it has little to do with the craftsmanship and it has to do with a kind of craftsmanship. The best films or most influential films, anything that any literally anything that I would call a criterion for a best pitcher, they don't. They are just saying 
favorite pitcher. So that's my beef with the Academy. I mean, this <laughs> which is has not, nothing to do with your. It has thing, something to I'm do with it. Saying. It's not the first or last time that you will talk about that. Uh, I mean, some of what I would argue with is really just more phrasing. Um, but I think in essence, you're absolutely correct. I don't think the Academy is uh, a, a infallible at all. They're far from that. Uh, hello, Green Book. But uh, I think that. Uh, I liked La La Land. (laughs) Also, it didn't win Best Picture. Uh, But it won everything It won some things. Uh, Not everything. It did win Director, which you probably shouldn't have compared to uh, Moonlight. Uh, But... And I like that director. You don't like Damon Chazelle? You don't like... No, I I like that director is what I'm saying. Um, I also like Barry Jenkins. I I like them both. In any case, I, I... But I have to... I'm accepting on the premise of the show... Which is we're not going to talk about Academy Award movies. Why isn't this an Academy movie according to their terms? And I think that's why. Um, I also think that since this time, they've fixed some of this problem because they've chosen to expand the pool of Best Picture movies. Um, now I haven't mm-hmm. seen them say like, "Hey, you know, we really ought to give a, a directing <clears throat> award to." you know, a Marvel movie, even though maybe there have been Marvel movies that deserved it, you know? Uh, but you're saying that the Academy or Hollywood uh, doesn't s- seize right through his I think they, I mean, I think they, they do. Say, if, you're writing and directing and ri- writing and directing. You got problems in that yeah, movie. I think they do. Therefore, we're throwing it I out. I think the, that anybody who's interesting professional screenwriter or director probably can look at the movie and say, that screenplay is very functional, and also this movie is very long. And look at how is it this long when it moves at this pace, and say, you know, uh, there are flaws with the filmmaking here. Although I think the filmmaking fixed the problems that if another director had had this movie, it'd be much worse, like much much worse. You know what I mean? Like Nolan's smart mm-hmm. and he's good, but that's not what the that's not what the award is. You know, the award is like uh, is, is a more of a positive excellence, if you will, like sort of this is visually obvious excellence. And his award would be uh, excellence in such a way that didn't detract from the movie if you had if you'd fucked it up like a negative excellence, if that makes sense. The other thing is that the Academy is essentially just trying to get tickets oh, 100%, sold for movies. 100 percent. That- didn't sell as well. They, that's <laughs> like one of the things. Also, all the people and this movie did. Yeah, gangbusters, so it doesn't need. So they're like, it doesn't right. need more money. <laughs> but also, the Academy, the people in filmmaking love those movies. They do. They love those mm-hmm. movies. Just they like do. when we were at film school, did anybody celebrate a single comedy that anyone made at film school? Like maybe one celebrated comedy. Yeah, where the, me, 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 baby. Well, you, Abe, of uh, course you did. Me. But I'm just, you know what I mean? Like, all everybody there was like making their indie drama, right? They thought I was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Except the teachers. Also the funny. teachers didn't think I was funny. The teacher, you were also yeah. funny. The teachers did not think I was funny. Because they don't love that. They don't and like that. And I thought that, that was hilarious. Yeah, they don't like that. Because they didn't, yeah, which is fine. That's, you know, more power to them. Everyone's, you know, I can't, I, I'm not, I, I don't know how to write jokes for boomers. One of my fucking. What is this shit? A uh, Bazooka Joe comic? Right, right. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to say. To that shit. Uh, but like, <laughs> but 
But man, they they I kept making them. Right. I mean, and like. <laughs> I mean, at the very least, they understood that you have to let filmmakers in who don't make pristine movies. They get, they did understand that they were not going to no, stop me. But they don't. But they're no. never going to be. Like none of my professors were like excited about my work, really ever. Uh, like like mm. none of the things I made, except for uh, a five thirty three that I made, were ever received with any kind of like uh, like man. You're really doing it, but the reward <clears throat> came in opportunity. You know what I mean? Like the rewards always came with. Uh, yeah. They treated me. They tre- they would always give more harsh feedback, uh, which to me is a compliment. You know, like, hey man, I, I yeah. like that. Yeah, and it came yeah. with opportunity. Like when I when it came time to direct stuff, uh, I was always considered. So, I remember one professor said that I my short film was like the worst I've heard that. kind of. Yeah, TV. I heard that. I heard that story. And my question is that really worse kind of TV? He's like, yeah. And I was like, more than like right. What are you talking TV? about? Yeah. He's like, well, okay. <laughs> Jerry fucking like, Springer yeah, is better than this. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, worse kind yeah. of TV. He's talking about like it's always sunny in Philadelphia and stuff, which he didn't like. Uh, but it's just yeah, it's taste, man. It's taste. Well, and, and they're the they're the taste definers. They were. You can't let Hollywood define you, man. I think that's Nolan. Get out there and fly. Well, your Nolan, flag, by the way, go make all tenet. he wants to do is get the pristine awards, though. Like, I don't think Nolan God, that's such... wants to make action movies. I think he wants to make. Uh, I mean, he wants to make a million dollars, and you know, be. I mean, that's yeah, probably. He... I don't know what that guy thinks. He that guy's like. He's like not. He's like soulless to me. Every time I've seen him talk, in interviews or whatnot he just seems like a very mild-mannered a man without a prestige if you will like he doesn't show you anything he just goes "Mm -hmm, this is the thing that needs to be done i want to do this and that's all he ever cares to speak i think we learned a little bit more about who he is from the way that he handled tenet uh like i think that the fact that he was so relentless about getting it into a theater uh, and getting it out, and when it was like, dude, I think he needs yeah, an audience. He needs I to think be seen. That's what's most important? Uh, to him yeah, he needs to. C- Which is not the worst no, thing to care that's about. That's what we're here to know? do. I want an audience, don't you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, nice. feels yeah. great. I like. I. Uh, I think he should have. At this point in my life, I like money Me too. Um, but yeah, well, he has both. <laughs> if yeah, I had money, like he had money. That's the thing I would care about, probably. I don't know. I kind of care. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I would when make he makes movies. a flop, though. But like when he makes a flop, it's like uh, if he makes a flop, I think Tenet might be the first one. Like he might lose the freedom to make the movies he wants to make because he wants to make very right. expensive, high concept, original IPs. No one gets to fucking do that. Mm-hmm. You know, talk about uh, th- what happened with Spielberg. He wa- he had. A situation where he could make the movies that he wanted to. You know, you look in like late nineties, early two thousands, like with the Amistad and yeah, you know, like bad movie. He's doing whatever he wanted, yeah. even though everyone was like, Please give us another Jurassic Park. He can't get a Jurassic Park made now. You know, like he he made one too many BFGs where they're just like, you know what? I, we think Spielberg's done. You're better right. just and he's Steven Spielberg. Steve- uh and he's Steven fucking But he's Spielberg. also 75 or right? He's he's getting old. Yeah, I mean he's not he's uh, yeah. you know yeah. like that's 
He's had he's had a, a great, great he's run. had three great careers. Like, get, come on. Yeah, he's had careers. Yeah, and careers, well, and careers. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I love. But the it's guy. just it's I'm not crazy sh- how you see that happen. Yeah, and with Nolan, uh, you know, you, you, Spielberg is like, well, how do how are you on top for thirty years? Because you he know, was an innovator. Maybe Nolan's been on top about twenty. No, 10. about twenty. 10 to 15. Mm. Like uh, Memento was his arrival. 2005 is like Batman Begins. Yeah, right? so I would say he's on top from that movie till now, right? Yeah, 15. so I guess yeah, 15, okay. yeah. Yeah. So he's getting there. He's getting up there. It's hard least. to be this guy, like to be, uh, you know, like uh, the guy who they give him a lot of money and they make original IPs with him. There's not that many of those. Right. There's like maybe yeah. been five in cinema history. You know, uh, Spielberg is one of them. I mean, Hitchcock, I think, is technically one of them. Uh, yeah, and we're seeing we're seeing uh, the next five ten years is going to be interesting. Yeah, we haven't seen who that person uh, is yet. I think actually, COVID is going to make it more apparent because we're gonna ha- we're having if if the ninety eighties and nineties was the years of the Artours, we're seeing the death of the Artours, and we're seeing the birth of the studio directors. Not versus because they're not against and the indie each other, filmmakers, but it's again. just like, and the indie filmmakers, yeah, where who are exclusively voice, you know, and that's the niche market that I think that like COVID and things like that, because they're gonna make a lot of, on top of the democratization of the tools like easier cameras, people shooting things like Tangerine on an iPhone, you're gonna get a lot of that, and you're gonna get all of the money actually going to the big right. budget Marvel yep. stuff. Cause those get the returns. And that's going to be interesting because in five, 10 years is also when like, we're going to see like the bubble kind of burst on Disney a little bit. Like I think people are going to, it's, it's 50, 50 in my head, whether or not people are going to get bored of the same old things, or they're going to find a way to pivot, you know, the, the problem uh, with boredom, things like the MCU, the problem with- to a new thing. The problem with boredom is that uh, that you have to have an alternative to uh, to make a change. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's the thing that's a little scary about Disney uh, and Netflix, I guess, is that like uh, slowly the alternatives are ar- are are sort of evaporating. Yeah, that. Things like the thirty million dollar picture, which has since been like displaced. Yeah, you know. I mean, they, uh, what are you doing with that? What are you doing? Those tend to that? come back, though, right? Like, uh, like they yeah. got to because they're good bang for the buck. They're yeah, you're putting a lot of money in it, but like most people for like things like comedies, like right, Neighbors, right, right. Right. for example, which is like one of the last thirty million dollar comedy. You know, like uh, that kind of stuff was like, oh, okay. This looks enough like a film, but it was a gamble. But you had all the money went to like the two actors who everyone ran and went to see right. it, uh, who cared about those actors. It made its money back easy, you know. Uh, they're Disney's going to see the appeal to that. They obviously they're so huge. The problem is just that if they're going to make less of it because they know that they can play the big game and just like, well, this is a sure one billion dollar movie. And I'll take one one billion dollar movie a year over six thirty million dollar that make three times their money back. 
because just the math. I mean, you, know? you can never count out the fact that people want those movies to exist. And by people, yeah, I don't just mean consumers. I mean people who make movies also. People who make movies. Yeah, we talked about this in their yeah. Dread podcast. It, like, they're not no. monsters. They're also Some not dumb. Some of them are. Uh, the- but they're they are they started with a love for movies in their heart, and it's not just about the mathematics of the industry. I think it's just we got to make sure that it as things get tighter, the belts get tighter, people start turning to that type of thinking, and that causes thing people to not become bold with their opportunities, but rather to look at the market and say, what's working? Okay, well, the market's been displaced between studio movies and indie features, and there's no in-between. And you know what? Let's just not play the line then, because let's just do what everyone else does. That's what I'm scared sure. of. It's not that these people who are inherently creative and want to be a part of something that's new and fresh and cool, uh, and just like every reason why we want to watch new stories, but are going to be just like, I'm not going to take a risk on things that don't look like these other things, which is fundamentally bad for storytelling. It is, and yet... You should always be looking for things that don't look like other uh, things. Yes, and yet... Uh, I mean, COVID has presented perhaps the most real threat to the business we've ever seen. But uh, this moment of like Hollywood's finally going to run dry because of these bad practices has come many times. And all I can say is, uh, uh, by way of hope, is that nobody really wants that to be what movies are. You know, like uh, it's a bummer to me that we need only one person to be Christopher Nolan, for instance. Like I like I think we could mm-hmm. easily do with like ten of those people, you know, like making and I think the the movies would be better off for it. I think I think what they'd get is more people watching movies if that was happening, not not the same eyes going from their Marvel movie to, you know, new auteur. I think they'd just be more people watching movies, um, which there can be, you know, so. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I am, I'm also afraid of that. Abe, believe me, I, there's so many reasons to be afraid for what filmmaking is becoming, especially when you and I are not currently being paid to make films. Uh, it's a thing that's scary, but, uh, you know, I also believe in the, the innovation and the fire of the human spirit. Right. I mean, like, isn't that what we're all about? I believe in that. That's what got us here in the first place. Uh, that ain't dead yet. Yeah. Not yet. You just got to connect with some people in a room uh, who are essentially you can speak the same language and they love the idea and you like them. It's like dating. Yeah, I believe if I had I believe if I was given 20 pitch meetings, I could find a way in one of those pitch meetings to make somebody a whole lot of money. You know, I, I believe that. Like, uh, not because of my ego, uh, although I guess my ego, how can you separate it? But uh, because I, I fundamentally believe in my ability to connect to people and to tell a story. And uh, I think the difference between me or you and uh, a successful filmmaker making either indie films or even studio pictures is opportunity, baby. I really believe that. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I think there's truth in that. Yeah. I mean, there's... All the people behind someone like Nolan who 
can easily just support him because he's Nolan. He started off as not Nolan, you know, and he's kind of taken a lot of those people with him. I'm sure, you know, his yeah. producers and stuff. Cause I know, you know, his producer has been his producer since Memento. That's um, amazing. But it's, what a job. You know, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, Nolan, um, Nolan, like Tarantino, like Hitchcock, like, uh, I would say Spielberg, but Spielberg is actually shown to be a little bit more diverse. Uh, like numerous auteurs has a unique thing that no one else has been able to successfully copy. And I don't even know in his case, if it's like a visual style, I think it's more of a, a type of story he wants to tell. Uh, that's usually based around time and sort of high concept ideas. And he's very efficient at telling it and they make money. He's very good at that. Uh, you know, uh, Tarantino's really great at repackaging older formats uh, in a way that feels like a love letter to movies and also new and exciting. He's great at that. You know, uh, I just believe that those people, I believe that Nolan is uh, talented at his thing, but also that's his thing. That's the only, th that's his real contribution period. Right. He's not, uh, he's not Stanley Kubrick. I mean, do you think he's Stanley Kubrick? I do not. Well, I mean, I don't think any anyone who's made uh, a dent um, in the zeitgeist like those guys are each other. That's the whole reason they made a dent on the zeitgeist. They're their own thing. Well, but I just mean, uh, like, okay, do you think in like 30 years, uh, I mean, I know we're drifting over into the long section here, but do you think in like 30 years or, I don't know, longer, we're going to look back on Nolan's films and think they're all as good as we think, say Spielberg's films are, or even Tarantino's first few films. Are we going to think that about him? I don't know what that culture is going to be like there, but I can say that if I, unless I have a crazy change of my mind and if I'm alive during that, Oh, I hope so. Have any influence whatsoever in the zeitgeist? No. Uh, I, I think that, we're going to, they're, they're still going to be stacked up the ways I see them now, but I think that anything can happen. So you think we will, yeah. or we will not remember, like he will not, or will be, I think there's people. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe like there's new things come to light all the time about filmmakers. Filmmakers make bad choices all the time. Um, history probably is not going to look on Kubrick as memorably in the next 30 years than it did in the first 30 years after. That's possible. Uh, yeah. That's definitely possible. There's, He's so adventurous I, in all themes. All I can say is that I can't really speak to it. And I, don't, sure. I don't know. I don't know how I sure. feel about that is probably a better answer to that question. Kubrick is very adventurous in his artistry. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, this is, belongs in a different podcast, I guess. Anyway, I hope you liked this conversation about uh, Christopher Nolan's filmmaking in the dark night. Uh, and hopefully you're not disappointed to hear that he's not perfect. Uh, cause he isn't, uh, Abe, <clears throat> I think, I think our audience will probably share your take. I think, I think you hit Ooh. it right. And I think people Ooh. are going to hear you. That's my, if I was a bet man, you might get some people who are like, no, all the things you said were wrong. Great. I won't yeah, listen I to probably it. not. <laughs> Great. I'll really appreciate I reading that thought. Yeah. Yeah. 
But um, go ahead and drop a comment on how Adam is wrong. <laughs> Man, I don't need any more antagonists. And, uh, I got plenty. Like and subscribe. Yeah, yeah. Patreon.com slash small <laughs> beans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you like this content and uh, you have the means... Feel free to toss a couple of bucks our way. You know, we're we're out here to entertain you and uh, watch your favorite stuff and hopefully give you more insight into it. Uh, Abe, you're still beautiful. Oh, yeah. thanks, man. I was I got all dolled up for this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I know. Yeah, Did you look great. Yeah. Contour, even. Yeah. Shower. Yeah, yeah. yeah looking great. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so good. good. <laughs> so good. Okay. Until, until next, next time. time, I don't know what we're going to no talk idea. about, but I'm excited about this because we're, we're pumping these babies out pretty quickly for the next oh, few great. months here. I'm glad to hear that. We're going to do like two a Are month, we? I think. Okay. I don't know. We're going to see with uh, what happens with the old... Uh, I mean, at this point, this is going to be released in like a month from when we're recording. So it can be a completely different situation. But as far as I see it right now, uh, we still don't have a replacement for uh, the cast of the curious and I'm not going to yeah, push yeah, yeah. them to do it, even though it's on the table. So we got to think of new podcasts. Okay. Um, or we just do more of these cause these work and they these are, are fun. fun. Uh, I mean, we wouldn't do more. We would just like have less breaks, mm. I guess. Like we wouldn't do more as in like we gotta get no, no, I know what you mean. or something yeah, yeah, we just do more like frequently. that. But just like instead of every six weeks, you know, it's like every five hey, man, or something. Whatever like that. the audience needs, we're here for it. You know? Hey man. I feel cool. You. Yeah. You know that? Thank you. I like this theory. I like as very tempered. I always say that word after Yes, yours. they're always I give but nice I think pragmatic you, theories. Yeah. See, I'm like a wild man. Oh, I think <laughs> I'm like an agent. I mean, of chaos. If, if someone's looking for, I swing. If big. someone's looking for the difference between an Abe and an Adam episode, uh, I would say that mine tend to be not as technical. Uh, and this one was pretty what's technical. That? This one Somewhat was pretty technical. technical. Uh, I also, this is technical in a way that is like specific to things you and I both have done. Like I've worked with Steadicam enough, mm. and you've worked with it enough that like I know things about it that I can talk in more detail. Whereas like if I had to cover, for instance, uh, the last one we talked about with all the editing and stuff, even though I've edited many many things, I think it would be a, like a little harder to adequately describe it for me. And then I would feel like, I, and I never like to talk about something I feel like I'm wrong about or not an expert on. You know, uh, mm. that's one of my lines in the show. Is like I'm not going to talk about something I'm not an expert on or can't obviously defend not gonna do that so i don't that's very tempered <laughs> <laughs> all right now I, I, we got into the point in the day Megan's where i'm silly. becoming yeah, an like asshole it. oh no thank no, you buddy. good job man uh thank yeah. you everybody we love you, love you. 
This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!